Hello and welcome to episode 110 of the Thinking LSAT podcast in Los Angeles. I'm Nathan Fox. With me in Washington, D.C. is Ben Olson. Ben, what's the latest? Um, I got a manual transmission car. <laughs> wow. What a cool dude you are. Yeah, I started driving uh, on a stick shift. Same. When I was a kid. Yeah. Oh, you did? Really? Yeah, yeah cool. Um, and I drove a stick shift for about 15 years and then I don't know what happened, stopped. And I just, uh, was itching to get back to a manual transmission and it's pretty fun. So I have a manual transmission on my motorcycle since most motorcycles have a manual transmission, but, um, yeah, I haven't had a, a stick shift in a car for forever. What type of car did you get? It's a it's a BMW 3 Series. It's 2009, so it's used. I did not want to get a new car. Uh-huh. I was just you're, um, you're too sensible for that. It, yeah. Well, plus I have kids, so like you know, they throw rocks at cars sometimes, <laughs> and then you ask them why, and they don't know. <laughs> <laughs> they don't know why. They're just like, oh, they shrug their shoulders. Hey, you know what? So, you should be looking for the positive. At least they're throwing rocks at your car in the driveway instead of throwing rocks at cars passing by. <laughs> Or like yeah. <laughs> from the overpass, like onto the freeway. <laughs> yeah, um, but yeah, no, this, this is pretty fun to drive. It's like uh, because it's a manual transmission, and you know, it's it's an older car, but it's still pretty powerful, and so it accelerates fast and it's small. So it's it's been it's been cool. I'm actually thinking about um, getting some personalized plates. You know, in Virginia, it's kind of a a big thing. I, I heard somewhere that Virginia has the most personalized plates per capita than any other state. I don't know if that's actually huh. true. Um, you know, I'm sure it's easy to figure out, but <laughs> I have not. In any case, um, LSAT is available. So, oh shit! <laughs> I thought I don't know what else to get. That's not like stupid. So I might just get LSAT. Just LSAT. Yeah, that's it. I think you can. No, not not just. Just just the word LSAT by itself. Yeah, I know. That, that's well, that's interesting. It's short, which is kind of cool when you see the short personalized plates. But yeah. I was I was thinking you could get something a little more, you know, thinking LSAT. You'd have to seriously abbreviate it though. That'd be tough. Yeah. So what so we can fit up to seven letters here in Virginia. They have eight slots, but you're required to put a dash in one of them. So uh, you could go like T N K dash LSAT. Yeah, that's, that wouldn't be confusing. <laughs> <laughs> it would look like a normal license plate. No one in the world would <laughs> would catch that it was a vanity plate. Awesome. Yeah, I do wonder what people would think about an LSAT license plate. They'd be like, "Wait, is that the LSAT?" I've thought about getting Fox LSAT. <laughs> Yeah, you know, but yeah. but which would be perfect, except for then everybody would know it's my car, and they'd probably f- scratch it and stuff for all the <laughs> all the enemies I've created. They're like, oh, it's that guy. <laughs> yeah, this asshole. He's always talking shit on the podcast. <laughs> all right, we'll fix this guy up. Um, hey, uh, we frequently get people asking us, uh, you know, about uh, what is the best LSAT class they could take, and. Um, I might as well take this little moment here at the top of the show to encourage people to check out uh, Ben's free LSAT class and my free LSAT class. So this is going to be really simple. Ben's website is strategyprep.com. And if you go to strategyprep.com slash free, you will get a bunch of free shit from Ben and you'll get to see 
what Ben's like in the classroom. If you go to my website, which is foxlsat.com, specifically if you go to foxlsat.com slash free, you'll get to see a bunch of me in the classroom. And so you can check out uh, Ben's online class for free. You can check out my online class for free. You can decide which one of us uh, you prefer. You could definitely do both of those classes. Uh, I mean, you could do both of the paid classes if you like. But for sure, if you're studying for the LSAT, if you're listening to this podcast, I just can't imagine why you wouldn't go check out uh, Ben's free class. Again, that's strategyprep.com slash free or my free class. That is foxlsat.com slash free. Sorry yeah. for the commercial, but, you know, we are in business here, so we got to keep the lights on somehow. <laughs> Um, they're flicker, they're flickering. Yeah, seriously. Um, <laughs> cool. Today on the show, we are going to talk about ABA 509 disclosure reports. We are going to walk through a, uh, ABA 509 and we're going to talk about what kind of information is available there and why this is important that you look at these reports. We are also going to talk about, uh, the concept of making worlds, in logic games. We teased this at the end of the last show, but it's, uh, it's, I think really a useful concept for logic games. This, uh, this technique of really attacking a game by making worlds. And, uh, we'll, we'll talk about some various triggers for that and, and what that means. Uh, anything else you want to tease Ben? No, no, I'm excited for both of those things. Yeah, me too. And of course we'll, uh, do some emails and stuff as well. Um, Let's see. What do you want to start with? Uh, uh, I don't know. Maybe, maybe ABA. ABA. Okay, let's do it. So, uh, the magic search term. People are always like, "Boy, where do I find these? And is there a website for all these?" And yeah, it's called Google. And you go into Google and you just type uh, ABA five hundred nine and whatever name of whatever law school you want. So we were talking before the show started about which, uh, which school we wanted to walk through on the show. And, um, Ben suggested Georgetown because everybody's always asking about Georgetown. It's a gigantic, uh, very well-regarded law school. And, um, so we each, I don't know how you got there, Ben, but I just typed uh, Georgetown 509. That was it. And with, that's exactly what I did. Okay. Yep. And within two clicks, I'm looking at a document. It's a PDF it is hosted on the Georgetown website, um, but it doesn't matter because these forms all look exactly the same, mm-hmm. um, uh, except for it just has different name and different data. Um, this one says at the top of the page, it says Georgetown University 2016 Standard 509 Information Report. Why, Ben, yep. is it important that people look at these 509 information reports? First of all, what is a 509 information report? Yeah, so this is a report that's required by the ABA, the American Bar Association of all law schools. So um, this is not something that the law school is putting out is promotional material. (laughs) So it's not been skewed by um, an attempt to market itself. Uh, They all have to provide the same information in the same way. Yeah, standard form, standard font, standard colors. Everything, everything, right? There's no uh, yeah. no glossy bullshit on this. This is just totally data about the school. I, I should correct one thing you said. Um, AB, it, this is not required of all law schools. This is required of all 
ABA accredited law schools. Oh, that's a good point. So, if you can't find one of these, yeah. that's a problem. <laughs> yeah. yeah. If you're wondering whether your school is accredited by the American Bar Association, uh, see if you can find a 509 information report. If you cannot, it is not an accredited, uh, not an ABA accredited law school. Of course, there are state bar accredited law schools, uh, but if they are not accredited by the ABA, you might want to look at the uh, reasons why they're not accredited by the ABA. Yeah. So I know we just found this one by searching for Georgetown and 509, and that's by far the easiest way to find them. And Good. Let's give I them the harder way. <laughs> let's, so <laughs> here's now here's why I'm going to give them the harder way. Just fucking uh, No problem. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, you got to work for things in life. Um, the, uh, the harder way is to go to abarequireddisclosures.org. Again, that's ABAREquiredDisclosures.org. And the only reason I'm mentioning this is not so you can find these 509 reports, but actually because when you get to this hideous website, um, you will see two fields and or two drop-down boxes. And one of them is for the standard 509 reports that we just found more conveniently through Google. Thanks, Google. Uh-huh. Um, but the second box is actually a compilation of data, you can download um, basically CSV files of all the schools. And so most people won't care about this, but some people I know out there are like really into data and running and crunching the numbers. And if you want to do that, you can do that with a lot of these reports, which are just provided for free on this website, ABAREquiredDisclosures.org. Wow. I'm going to have to play with that a little bit. That looks interesting. So you can actually like run a report for conditional scholarships. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. So you can like see how many gazillion dollars of scholarships got taken away. <laughs> yeah. That's amazing. I, I actually haven't run the report for that one, but yeah, if, uh, let's see here. Just, we can run a report right yeah, now. Yeah, I just did it. 2016. Um, Oh, wow. And then it goes back to all the different years to CSV. So it's a little clunky. Um, percent. Oh, it's, it's only numbers eliminated. But I do. Now I have to sort and figure out which school eliminated the most scholarships in 2015-2016. Should we take, you Can want any guesses? Um, let's start with Hastings. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't, I don't think Hastings actually does the conditional scholarship thing that much. Um, oh, really? No. Okay. What? I thought every school had some sort of condition. No, not, they don't, they're not known for, for eliminating scholarships. I mean, they, they don't give that many scholarships is the first mm-hmm. step. Um, the, the, the most common ones that do the gotcha scholarship in the Bay area are Santa Clara and Golden Gate. Um, and those are both in the top uh, 20 uh, on this report of most scholarships eliminated. Um, mm. <clears throat> and by the way, if people are like, what? Scholarships eliminated? Um, yeah, a lot of law school scholarships are conditional on you getting a certain grade point average or a certain class rank or something. And mm. uh, it, it's uh, kind of scary because they will uh, – you know, say, Hey, you got to get a 3.0 and it can be really hard to maintain that 3.0 in law school. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, no, just really quickly here. It actually, if this data is correct, it says Hastings only gave 10 scholarships period, uh, 10 conditional scholarships period. And they only eliminated one of them last year. Um, I'm having a problem getting this spreadsheet to sort properly, which is weird. So wait, let me just uh, clarify what you're doing here. So you're looking at the the number of people who entered with a scholarship, and that's where you got the ten. And then right next to it and is the number eliminated. Yeah, the, the number eliminated. Yeah. yeah. So I'm just going to do a quick uh, subtraction here. Oh yeah. Is that what you did? Well, no, I just sorted by number eliminated. Um. Oh, I see. But then when I sorted by number eliminated, it actually didn't sort properly, which is disconcerting. Actually, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to do the number. Well, I mean, percent eliminated would be the best. Divided by, yeah. That's what I'm going to do here. Let's see here. Oh, you can't divide by zero. That's interesting. Never learned that in school. Um, That was a lame joke. Let's see here. Okay, so what now? Okay, I got the percentages here. Ooh, Charlotte School of Law is looking high. Let's see here. So basically, these high percentages are schools that know <laughs> that they're not going to have to fulfill their deal, their promise. Yeah, yeah, right. So, I mean, which that's, I mean, it's not like accidental. It's not like they're sitting there all disappointed. And, you know, oh, we're so sad that you. <laughs> oh, man, we have to take your scholarship. Oh, it's a shame. We were just hoping you would be able to maintain it. So, okay, so check this out. So Texas Southern University, okay. um, 78% of their scholarships were withdrawn. So that's unbelievable. They, they gave out 114 of them <laughs> and they took back. 89 of them. That's 78%. Are there some other big schools here? Atlanta's John Marshall School of Law. Yeah. Okay. San Diego, USD. Yeah. Ohio, Arkansas, Charlotte, Golden Gate. Yeah. Drake. Looking for some. St. Thomas. I don't. Okay. Well, these conditional scholarships tend to be at you know lower ranked sort of regional scholarship uh, regional schools where they're mm-hmm. they're trying to induce people to like we talk about a lot um, trying to induce people to make a possibly very smart decision to go to a bit of a lower ranked school and take a scholarship. Um, mm-hmm. The thing you just have to be very aware of is that if you don't kick ass at that school, you are likely going to learn lose your scholarship. Um, here in Los Angeles, the two that are doing that a lot are Loyola and Southwestern. Southwestern gave 87 scholarships and uh, eliminated 36 of them, so almost half. Hmm. Um, yeah, just, uh, just be careful, kids. That's all. It's uh, total. Well, so this is... This is interesting. Wayne State University, wherever that is, uh, gave out 116 scholarships and eliminated none of them. Huh. And our in my backyard here, we have American University. They only gave out five, but they did of not the, take away any of them. Of the conditional scholarship. Those are, those are five uh, conditional, conditional scholarships. So they, yeah, could, conditional they could also be giving unlimited uh, scholarships that are not conditional. Sure. That, and that is definitely yeah. happening at at a ton of these schools. So I'm looking like at California schools, UC Davis, UC Berkeley, UC Irvine. Um, mm-hmm. None of those are um, 
UCLA, none of those are giving out any conditional scholarships at all. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's mostly the kind of lower ranked schools that are taking away. Oh, well, how about, um, what was the one we were talking about? The one that publishes the scholarship matrix? What was that? Wasn't that like Thomas Jefferson? That's right. Thomas Jefferson. Let's see. Cause we've talked Where's about that? Thomas Jefferson before. Um, Thomas Jefferson does not. Oh, they're no, none of them are conditional. Say. That's right. Cause I remember that from the table. It was just non-conditional scholarships. Here you go. That's what you get. Wow. Yeah. Hmm. Good job, Thomas Jefferson. <laughs> they they like at least seem to be just sort of laying their cards on the table. I mean, they probably also yeah. fool people into thinking that they're going to be able to get a job after going to that school. <laughs> but, you know, if you're going there for free, then I don't know how much of a gotcha is it? Yeah. Well, $10,000 $10, for nothing is still nothing. That's true. Good point. Like, right? If they give you a great scholarship, but you give them ten grand. Right, yeah. They've won. And your soul, three years of your life. Yeah. Um, okay. So, pretty cool, huh? Yeah. So there's some data. There's lots of data. Boy, that's only one of, those, one of those reports you can run. You can run reports mm-hmm. on um, JD enrollment and ethnicity, GPA and LSAT scores, grants and scholarships generally, um, JD attrition, that's interesting, transfers Whoa. in bar passage rates, all, all sorts of stuff. So, wow, that's, that's great. That's yeah. really interesting. Okay, cool. And then we have these individual ABA 509s, which honestly, if you don't look at the 509 before you go to a law school, <laughs> which I didn't because I was yeah. an idiot. So I will speak from experience and tell you that if you don't look at the 509 before going to a school, you're an idiot. That is the, it's just now that you know that it's there, you're just such a sucker if you don't look at that 509. So, and we'll You're, we'll explain to you why. Yeah. So let's go back to the beginning here. So you Google Georgetown 509. Yep. This comes up the first result in Google, and then you click on this PDF, and it's a very formal, ugly-looking thing. There's a ton of data on here, and I think there's a lot of useful data, but sometimes I think it can overwhelm people. So what are what's some of the data that we see on here, and what are you most interested in, Nathan? What am I most interested in? Um, I am most interested in the grants and scholarships part. <laughs> I mean, I'm interested in the two tables on the right, on the top right of yep. the first page, mm-hmm. which yeah. which is um, GPA and LSAT scores of the incoming class. Mm-hmm. And it also has all kinds of information about how many people applied and how many offers gave they gave out and how many people actually yeah. attended, which is really interesting. I mean, here just with Georgetown to walk through some of the yep. numbers, um, they have full, separate data for full-time and part-time. Yeah. Um, but if we talk just about the Georgetown full-time program, they got 8,481 applications and of uh, to those 8,481 applicants, they made 2,240 offers. So most people that apply to Georgetown are getting denied. Um, yeah. But they did admit 2,200 people, which mm-hmm. is way more than can actually attend. Mm-hmm. And of those 2,240 that they offered, uh, 526 of them actually matriculated. So that it just kind of gives you an idea of what type of competition you're facing as you apply to a school like Georgetown, obviously very competitive. Um, but even though it's very competitive, they're still offering four times as many, um, spots as actually are 
taken up on them. So three quarters of the people who are admitted to Georgetown are then denying Georgetown. Yeah. Which that's encouraging. Actually, that makes me think that people are like playing the game, you know, applying to multiple Mm -hmm. schools and getting themselves the best offer they can. And hopefully this will help to drive home the point that if you're not applying to multiple schools, again, you're just being kind of an idiot. You're, you're, you're being not savvy if you only apply to one school. Yeah. Um, it's almost guaranteed you're not going to get your best offer at the first school, right? A mm-hmm. uh, little bit like declaring true love in your freshman year of high school or something. Um, could be perfect. <laughs> she could be the one. Um, odds are probably not. Okay. Um, yeah. <clears throat> as we continue down the same table, it's got uh, the percentiles for mm-hmm. both GPA and LSAT, which is really interesting because this yep. is where you get to figure out, you know, where you stack up. Uh, as an applicant and mm-hmm. Georgetown is a very good, but I would not say elite law school. Um, mm-hmm. boy, those GPAs are high. God damn. I would have had no chance at getting into Georgetown. Um, the 25th percentile is 3.5 and the, uh, 3.53 and the 75th percentile GPA is 3.86. So yeah, you know, that's the middle 50% of the class and they're between 3.5 and 3.8. And I just want to pause here for one second. A lot of times people ask me, hey, I'm really interested in going to Georgetown or some other school, and I'm just wondering, if I go into the part-time program, is it going to be easier to get in? Mm. Well, the the answer to that question is usually, yes, it's going to be a little easier. The question is, how much easier? Pull up the 509 report, and you can see exactly how much easier it's going to be for you. For example, um, the 25th percentile for GPA is, you just said, Nathan, is a 3.53. For the part-time program, it's a 3.39. So it's not much lower, but for some people that might be, you know, helpful. That's pretty so. significantly lower though. You know, I mean, when you're talking about grades that are that high, um, the difference yeah, between those, that 0.14 could be a big difference uh, in, mm-hmm. in GPA. You know, that's a a handful more A's that you would have had to have gotten to get into the full-time program. Uh, mm-hmm. A minuses are going to get you in a little bit easier in the part-time program there. And mm-hmm. then the LSAT ranges. Um, wow. There's a big discrepancy. A big there. difference. Holy yeah. <laughs> shit. That's, that's crazy. So um, the range 25th percentile in the full-time program is 162 and 75th percentile 168 in the part-time mm-hmm. program. Uh, it's the same 75th percentile. The top of the the top of the part time program looks a lot the same, mm-hmm. um, but the bottom of the the 25th percentile in the part time program is only 157. Yeah. Holy shit. Yeah. That's really really interesting. So yeah, I mean, there's a back door for you. You got okay grades and a okay LSAT score, and you want to go to Georgetown? Mm, maybe consider the part time program. Um, for sure. You know, that said, when you look at the apps and offers, mm-hmm. the story changes. Well, in some, I was thinking about that. In some ways it does, but maybe it doesn't because the numbers are still lower. Yeah, th- right? that's true. The numbers are still lower. So maybe what that means is that we've got a lot, we've got like, well, we do have less uh, at least GPA and LSAT qualified candidates. I mean, clearly the yeah. people you're competing against are lower qualified in those terms, but mm-hmm. you know, with a part-time program, Georgetown might also really be emphasizing um, pretty studly like professionals, you know, accomplished sure. uh, experienced kinds of folks. Mm-hmm. So who knows? I mean, it, you might, if you're like um, 
my guess is that if you're right out of college, never done anything, okay grades, okay LSAT, and you think you're going to sneak in in the part-time program, that might not work out for you at Georgetown. Because yeah. the apps and offers, they got 1381 applications and they only made 80 offers. So they're actually being way more selective on the applications yeah. that come into that mm-hmm. part-time program. Now, that's because the part-time applications are not as good as the full-time applications, uh, pretty clearly, mm-hmm. at least in, mm-hmm. in LSAT GPA terms. Anyway, yeah. sorry to bore everybody with this lengthy discussion, but um, if you're about to spend $150,000, $200,000 on law school, um, this is the type of thing that you ought to get interested in. Yeah. Well, I don't, yeah, I don't, I don't know if it's boring. I mean, this is like just so revealing yeah. like, so much that they can tell you. Like, first of all, um, I know we already mentioned this, but there's 500 about or so people in the full-time program and they're showing us here that there's 50 people in the part-time program. If you have any idea like how these things work, you know, sometimes people don't know. They think that each program is... <laughs> Pretty big? No, that's not the case here. The full-time program is huge and the part-time program is pretty small, which could actually be a really good thing if you're interested in the part-time program because you're going to know everyone in your class. Yeah, I think people should consider part-time programs a lot a lot more than they do. Uh, I could see it being a lot more civilized way to do law school. Yeah. So why do you think they have these numbers here that said number of people not included in LSAT percentile calculation? So, for example, five people were excluded from the percentile calculation. Think they didn't take the LSAT? Possibly. Because I know Georgetown does accept people from Georgetown who have a high enough GPA. Uh, that, that must be it. I mean, now, this is a tiny, tiny fraction, right? We got five people in the full-time program and one person yep. in the part-time program that weren't included in this. And we're talking about thousands of, uh, you know, 2,200 offers they made and 526 mm-hmm. that matriculated. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I don't know what the not, not included really means. I think for practical purposes, people can just ignore that. I, um, then I'm really, really interested, and this is probably where I would go first. If I'm just mm-hmm. kind of shopping around for law schools, I would be yep. looking. Uh, on the left side, it does show you the tuition, mm-hmm. which is outrageous at $57,000 <laughs> for the full-time program and uh, $39,000 you know, for one more year in the part-time program. Yeah. Um, so... Holy shit. And it shows you living expenses too, but it shows you the total tuition. And then in the middle of the right-hand side of the first page, it shows you grants and scholarships uh, for the prior academic year. Uh, This is total number of students, uh, the total number receiving grants. Then it breaks it down into how many people got less than half tuition, how many people got half to full tuition, how many people got mm-hmm. full tuition, and how many people got more than full tuition. Mm-hmm. It also shows you 25th, 50th, and 75th percentile grant amounts. Um, this is really, really interesting. I, it, it jumps out to me here that Georgetown is giving less scholarships, I think, than a lot of other schools do. Mm-hmm. If you look yeah. at, like, I remember recently looking at UC Davis and UC Davis was giving grants to like 80% of their class or something outrageous mm-hmm. like that. Um, mm-hmm. So here at Georgetown, they know that they're the shit and they know, therefore, that they don't have to give, you know, 
crazy financial inducements. Yeah. Um, why is the total number of students different? I think it's maybe it's for everyone for the entire school. Uh, yeah. That's what my thought was. Cause that's about right. Right. You have 500 people in the full-time program who are entering and this is saying 1,700 people. Well, 576. So. Yeah. So, yeah, right. So closer to 600 times three. It's still, hmm, I guess some people could have stayed an extra year in the full-time program. Oh, yeah. Oh, sorry. I was just looking at the full-time numbers. Yeah. Um, oh, shit. I was looking at the total. No, you're right. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So it does. The math does work out. Yeah. Okay. So it's just times three. Yeah. So that's in the prior academic year. Oh, how many people at the school were receiving scholarships? Okay. Yep. Yeah. Interesting. Um, notice that these there's a on the on the middle left it has a whole ta- a whole area for conditional scholarships, but uh, mm-hmm. Georgetown is one of these schools that does not offer any of the conditional scholarships. If Georgetown did offer conditional scholarships, here's where you would figure out which ones, how many are uh, reduced and how many are eliminated. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so. Yeah. Okay. So Georgetown, let's see in the full-time program, 54% are getting some sort of grants. uh, Yeah. So let's, let's go through this. So they have, they have 1700 people, right? And about half are getting, receiving grants. So what, what can we take away from that much? Yeah. That an economist would say that what they're doing is called price discrimination um, mm-hmm. price discrimination mm-hmm. is a way of maximizing profit by charging all your customers different prices. Mm-hmm. And, um, it's the, it's a way that they can figure out what your willingness to pay is on an individual level. They're doing an individual yeah. negotiation with every person and they're mm-hmm. only offering scholarships to the people that they think they have to offer scholarships to in order to induce them to come. Yeah. Um, if you don't get a scholarship at Georgetown, you are in the minority Mm-hmm. And you know you're the one in the room who's paying full price. No, it's true. It's not a. It's not a huge. No, nah, it's about right? half. We're, talking, we're about half. So ha- half of the people who go there can expect to get something. Now, of course, how much that is depends on what comes next, right? So most of those people are getting about forty percent of the full time class is getting less than half. Yeah, and. I think you can then you can start to look at the two tables in conjunction with one another, right? So we got the mm-hmm. GPA LSAT score uh, table on the top, and then we got the grants and scholarships table on the bottom. And mm-hmm. if they're saying that half the class, or slightly ha- over half the class, let's just call it half, half of the mm-hmm. full time class is getting some kind of scholarships. Well, when you go back up and then you look at the fiftieth percentiles for LSAT and GPA. You, mm-hmm. you, I think you should expect that if you're at the 50th percentile GPA or you're at the 50th percentile LSAT, you know, or both the, both of those together, mm-hmm. I would think that you should qualify for one of the smaller scholarships at that point. Does that make sense? Yeah. You're, uh, I mean, <clears throat> you're right on the edge, but you should expect it, right? You should hope to get it. Well, you should certainly ask for it because part of it too yeah. is that if you don't ask for it, they might not give it to you. So you can probably negotiate yourself a better deal than you technically deserve. Yeah. Yeah. Especially if you're the one asking and you have a bunch of other people who are in the 50th percentile not asking. Check out the typo in that table. Do you see the on, on the uh, GPA LSAT scores? Uh, 75th percentile LSAT, 50th percentile LSAT, and then it says 25 percentile LSAT. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. 
that is funny because that's the type of shit that lawyers really should catch. This is like an official ABA document. Hmm. Hmm. Um, <clears throat> Okay. Anyway. Uh, okay. So then it says here that, uh, half the school's getting, uh, grants of some sort and then it mm-hmm. breaks down the, like the amounts. So mm-hmm. of the people getting grants, 37.5 percent. Oh, that's not of the people getting grants. That's of the entire class. That's of the total. Yeah. yeah so yeah. of the total people in the school, 37 and a half percent of them are getting less than half tuition. Mm-hmm. And then 16.3% of them are getting half to full tuition. So mm-hmm. what what do you think the LSAT GPA looks like for those people that are getting half to full tuition? Well, since they're they're in the basically since there's no one there's two people above this group, right? Um full tuition and more than full tuition, but uh literally two individuals. Right. But um so this is the top 16%. Yep. So you're looking at like 85 in you know the 80 85% uh, and above so these people are in the 75th percentile right range uh, or higher yeah i would expect that and if you go back up to the table above you see that the 75th percentile gpa was 3.86 and the 75th percentile lsat was 168 so yep. it, i would think that if i applied at the 75th percentile Mm-hmm. And I negotiated and I applied to a lot mm-hmm. of other schools, you know, and I wasn't, mm-hmm. and I, of course, all the other soft stuff matters, good personal statement, recommendations, all that stuff. But I think with a 75th percentile LSAT and GPA, I would be able to get myself into that half to full tuition bucket just through, through negotiation. Mm-hmm. Right. <clears throat> Cause yeah. I think most people aren't asking. So if, yeah. if you're the one that asks, then I think, yeah, there's, there's money there. So there are people who, if you have really strong credentials, there are people who are getting um, half to full tuition. Uh, and then, yeah, there is one individual who got exactly full tuition. Mm-hmm. And then there's one individual who got more than full tuition. Yeah. Which is awesome. Who knows how much that that is. But, you know, that could be, they could be paying for books. They could be paying for living expenses. They could be mm-hmm. buying you a uh, new sports car who knows what's going on with (laughs) more than um yeah this is actually at georgetown they're not giving a lot of crazy deals but when you look at 509s for other schools you start to see really interesting stuff where they're giving lots of full tuition scholarships or lots of Mm -hmm. more than full tuition scholarships and Mm -hmm. then imagine what that looks like if you're getting nothing Mm -hmm. and the person sitting right next to you might be getting more than full tuition yeah. Where you're you're not only paying their tuition for them, but you're also like paying their rent for them. Yeah. <clears throat> so anyway, I, man, if I was the ABA, I would require people, I would require schools to like publish this on the front page of their brochures. You know, it should be like, <laughs> this should be like posted outside the front door of the school. Yeah. Um, cause uh, Jeez, I, if everybody looked at these things, I think people would make much smarter decisions about law school. Yeah, I wonder where they bury them on their website. I mean, it's so easy to find with Google, but this looks like it's in a ton of different folders and stuff. Oh, well, I mean, I taught LSAT for like seven or eight years before I even knew these things existed. So, and I mean, I had gone to law school and I don't think I ever looked at one of these. Yeah, it's, it's, they're, they're, they have to be on the website 
but they they hide it in all sorts of yeah they're they're not encouraging people to look at this stuff they they don't want people contemplating this stuff um, yeah but we do so magic search term again is law school name five hundred nine or law school name. ABA 509 and you will see these reports for every ABA school for every single year. Continue yeah. down the page. Yeah, let's do it. What do we see next? Uh, so are we, are we moving on from grants and scholarships? Oh, unless you want to keep talking about them. No, no. I'm just wondering, is there anything to take away from this 75th percentile grant amount, 30,000? Like, I'm not too sure how to read into that. Uh, well, at the 75th percentile, so this is of the people who get grants. This is of the people yeah. who gets grants, right? right. Yeah. So of the uh, 54% of the class, mm-hmm. uh, this, uh, 20, the 75th percentile is the high end. So uh, 25% got more than $30,000. Yeah. The 50th percentile is 20000 that's cr- they like set that they 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 that's intentional. I mean that's not like an accidental thing, right? Um, yeah, yeah. So yeah, so the the fiftieth percentile, the middle number of the people who are getting scholarships, they got twenty grand. Now mm-hmm. we keep saying scholarships. We're we're trying to train ourselves to say discounts, right? But uh, we haven't succeeded in doing that. These really, you know, <laughs> Georgetown is not writing checks here. Um, yeah, there's one person <laughs> that Georgetown wrote a check to <laughs> who's who got more than full tuition, but all the rest of these people, um, just got discounts off of the price they paid. So again, the, uh, full-time tuition at Georgetown is $57,000 and, um, the people who are getting scholarships are most commonly getting 20,000 or the, the middle number is they're getting a $20,000 discount off of that. So there's, they're still paying Georgetown $37,000 for the privilege of attending. Um, but Hey, 37 is a lot better than 57. Yeah. So basically what you want to figure out is what percentage of the school or what percentage of the school is getting grants, figure out where you are sort of in that group of people. If you're in that group of people, where would you sort of fit based on your LSAT and GPA? And then come look at these last three numbers and say, oh, okay, I'm kind of, I'm near the upper end of this range. I'm near the lower end of this range. Therefore, if I'm not getting one of these numbers, then I'm not getting as much as I could be. Yeah, absolutely. That is, that is absolutely. Cool. Um, so then we have like ethnicity and stuff. This stuff is interesting. This stuff is really interesting. I mean, I commonly get questions, you know, people ask, Hey, uh, I'm Hispanic or Hey, I'm mm-hmm. uh, black or African American. Do, do I get any kind of a, a boost in admissions? And, um, I think you start looking at this table and it becomes pretty obvious that you're going to get some sort of a boost. Um, Georgetown has the luxury because it's such a great school. They have the luxury of being able to, um, you know, attract applicants of all races, but still, um, you know, they've got, uh, enrollment at, uh, let's see, does it total total? Okay. So like total Hispanic enrollment at Georgetown, six and a half percent total black enrollment at Georgetown, 7.7% percent of the class i mean what's the what's the black population of dc oh 
Way higher. I mean, like how, way higher. Yeah. Than, yeah. So, you know, they are clearly under in the community. They are, they are vastly still underrepresented at Georgetown. And I guarantee that is with aggressive efforts by Georgetown to try to, uh, to try to fix that. You know, they, they are, they are definitely, um, going after qualified, uh, black and Hispanic applicants. And we have seen, um, I guess I can't speak to Georgetown specifically, but we, you know, I've seen people get into Harvard that I just was surprised, right. At the numbers, just Mm. based purely on the numbers. I'm like, no, I don't think so. But then, Oh, African-American. And they do get a a boost because schools are, you know, they are really genuinely committed to uh, diversity and they are going to give a a boost um, to qualified, uh, qualified minority applicants. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I wish they would show scholarship data, uh, by ethnicity, but I guess that's just not required, but that'd be really interesting to look at too. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So you can, uh, you can take a look at that if you are interested, then what this next page, meh. I don't care. Yeah. All the curriculum I mean, the stuff, thing, who gives a shit? Yeah. It, there, there's some things that might be interesting to people who are um, considering transferring, but you really don't want to have that be your plan from the get-go. No, but no. It has the percentage of people or the number of people who transferred. It also has uh, the GPAs that they had, so you can see how well you have to be doing. The one really, LGPAs, this is for, yeah. Yeah, this is really for people who have already been (laughs) – have already started at some school and now are thinking about transferring. Too many people think about transferring before they have even finished applying to schools. They're sort of like, oh, I'll go here and then I'll transfer. Yeah, that's probably not going to happen. So Yeah, it's possible. But boy, you you have to kill it during your 1L year and um, far more people think they're going to be able to – kill it than actually can kill it because it's yeah <laughs> it's a competition and not everybody can win um so everybody oh, the fir- is trying to transfer first question i always ask is like well what's your undergrad gpa and if that's not great it's like i'm sorry law school is not going to get any easier yeah so right totally um if the lsat's a challenge for you it's probably best to bite the bullet now and fix that because that's going to actually be easier to fix than it is your first year grades yep yep Cool. So then we have bar passage rates. Anything interesting here? Um, yeah. Sure. Yeah. I mean, here we're. It, it's. I wonder. They're showing they're not bad. They're showing these. They're showing New York, Maryland, California, and Virginia, uh, because those are the most common ones. I guess. I suspect. Yeah. And uh, it shows the pass rate of the Georgetown uh, bar takers, and then the state pass rate and then subtract it for you shows you the differential so um georgetown uh Mm. students are passing the bar uh at a they're passing the new york maryland california and virginia bar at higher rates uh than Mm -hmm. the state averages which is great yeah um unlike a school like uc hastings which is passing the bar at a dramatically lower rate than the state average Uh, that's all information that's on the aba 509 so they can't really hide the ball there. 
One thing that's interesting here is that the numbers have, I mean, I guess it's not surprising, but for the past three years, they've been going down, right? Bar passage rates um, in 2013 were around 89%. Now it's 87 in 2014. And then in 2015, it was 85%. Mm-hmm. So, Yeah, I mean, that's because the quality of applicants overall has been yeah. going down, right? The number of applicants has For been some going reason, down. Yeah. And so then, therefore, they've had to start admitting lower qualified, uh, lesser qualified applicants. And then surprise, surprise, you don't pass the bar. Yeah. Well, I guess it's not that surprising. And what I'm surprised about is that, um, this was hap- that it was as high as it was in 2013. I kind of felt like it had bottomed out by then, but I guess it continues to decline. <laughs> uh, that, uh, well, that doesn't surprise me though, because there's a lag, right? I mean, the, the bottom in applicants didn't happen until what just a year or two ago. Yeah. So the bottom in bar passage rates should be happening, you know, three or four years after that. Mm -hmm. Hey, look at this. So the very last thing is the, um, the schools from which students transfer. I know it's awesome. Yeah. So like here, uh, we have 11 students who made it from American University, which is actually pretty incredible. Kudos to them. American is a lot easier to get into than Georgetown. So these people got into American, worked their butts off, and then ended up at Georgetown. Yeah, but I mean, that's Impressive. out of... That's, that, those, those 11 kids, I mean, they crushed it versus, what, 200 other people in the 1L oh, cohort yeah. at American? And Yeah, we can find out. <laughs> Just look at the other 509. Yeah, and but, it's like, okay, yeah. American is... Um, American is easier to get into, but it's not like there's a bunch of dummies, you know, you're not, you are not competing against a bunch of idiots at American. And if you totally crushed it at American, then yeah, Georgetown's like, oh, okay. Yeah. You can come over to Georgetown now, pay full tuition, of course. And, um, yeah. And, and, you know, do a much more difficult academic competition (laughs) over at Georgetown. But if if you can get a 4.0 at American, then they're like, oh yeah, you can, you can definitely hang at Georgetown. So they are poaching the best of the best from uh, all of these schools. Your favorite school is here. Yep, one uh, person from Hastings. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Well, that's interesting. So that's a 509 report for you. It's four pages. And um, wow, it's full of great information, especially if you know how to read it. And comparing this to another school that you're debating can make all the difference it's awesome man some there's a there's a transfer to georgetown from thomas jefferson one person there's a transfer to georgetown from uh, southwestern law school uh transfer from two transfers from university of san francisco one from seattle university i mean basically they're poaching the future valedictorian from every law school yeah imagine how much heart like so then goddamn 2L and 3L grades at at a school like Georgetown, you know, there's going to be some attrition where the 1Ls Mm -hmm. drop out. A few of the the 1Ls drop out, which is on this report somewhere. But then they also, I don't see the total number here, but the total transfers in are like 50, Mm -hmm. roughly. 50 badasses from like every law school, the, all the people, the 50 people who crushed it the most in their 1L class at all these law schools all across the country, then also then join your cohort at Georgetown for 2L and 3L years. Yeah. Ouch. (laughs) 
my god. It's like a, a pruning. <laughs> it's it's survival of the fittest. It's just like, yeah. oh my god, I can't. I, whoa, boy, am I glad I'm not doing all this anymore. Okay. Amen. Yeah. <laughs> okay. That's the ABA 509. Uh, I think you should be legally required to sit down and look at this stuff before you go to law school. You are not. Yeah. Uh, you can be as dumb as you want, but boy, I, I, you really ought to check this stuff out. Um, I don't know. Anything else about all that? No, that's great. Okay. Thanks. Yeah, that was, that was awesome. Thanks for the suggestion. I'm glad we did that. Um, Maybe we move on to this uh, thing about worlds. What do you think? Yeah, I think we do. Yeah, let's do it. Okay, cool. So worlds in a nutshell. Do you call it worlds? Do you teach it that I way? I do. Yeah. Okay, yeah. good, good. I think I stole that term from you. So thank you. <laughs> oh, steal all you want. I don't care. Um, worlds is this... Uh, technique it is playing offense instead of playing defense or you know instead of letting the game run you over mm-hmm. sometimes you can notice uh that the game has a limited set of scenarios i, mm-hmm. I think the simplest way to think about it is in a, in a world that breaks down into basically a single fork in the road where there's only go left or go right. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess <clears throat> a very obvious example of this would be a rule that says like, Hey, either P or Q has to go forth. Yep. And it, I wouldn't in that case, I wouldn't automatically make a template where P goes forth and a template where Q goes forth, but I would Absolutely. certainly, but I would certainly think about it. Oh yeah, for sure. I, I think about it even if I don't see those things initially. Yeah. I'm looking for them. Exactly. Right? right. So people always say, you know, when, when do I, boy, I'm having a hard time figuring out when to make worlds. And mm-hmm. the, my answer to that is as often as you can, <clears throat> um, worlds pr- frequently provide a shortcut to solutions. They allow you to do a bunch of work once in advance before you start answering the questions. And Mm -hmm. if you do the work once in advance, then you get to benefit from that work for all, you know, six of the questions instead of reinventing the wheel for, uh, each question. Yeah. So if you're a little bit lost about what we're talking about here, just to, to go back to the PQ example, if you have a game that only allows you to put P or Q in slot four, then, um, those are the only two possibilities for that slot. So you could create, quote, a world in which P is fourth and another world in which Q is fourth because those are the only two possibilities. And so by creating those two worlds, you're not leaving any other possibilities out, right? You've covered everything. Um, And then based on those two assumptions, the assumption that P is fourth and the assumption that Q is fourth, you can start filling in those diagrams in a way that you couldn't or you sometimes can at least in a way that you couldn't if you didn't know whether it was actually p or q in the fourth slot Mm. i would only do well so there's the fork in the road right p fourth or q fourth i would only make that split though if i thought that it was gonna start knocking over dominoes in one or both of those worlds right 
Yeah. So, and I think this this is the most important part, right? This is the one this is the thing that everybody sort of grapples with. And it is a sort of a prediction that you don't know for sure until you actually do the worlds, but you're sort of sensing that, hey, look, if I make this assumption, then at least I know right away that this one thing will happen. Does that seem like it might lead to other dominoes falling yeah. over? If so, go for yeah. it. Yeah, and a very simple example would be if it was like, suppose there was another rule that said um, P must go immediately before Z, mm-hmm. right? So mm-hmm. now you've got P mentioned twice. Mm-hmm. And if we have the world where P is fourth, you get to place Z in the fifth spot. Yeah. A little bit obvious, right? Um, yeah. In the world where uh, Q is fourth, you would also know that then P can't be third and mm-hmm. Z can't be fifth. So mm-hmm. in that in that case, you just have two rules interacting in a way that if you mm-hmm. make the two worlds in advance, you get to start making some inferences in each of the two worlds. Yeah. And it's possible that those inferences might then trigger other inferences and sometimes mm-hmm. you get a whole cascade where one of the worlds, it's possible that one of the worlds will be entirely completed yeah, or really close to completed. And yeah. when that happens, it's magical because you have, an- you have already answered one or more of the questions before you even read those questions. Yeah. Now, I've noticed a trend on the test. Let's say you you end up creating two worlds and one is very full and the other is not so much. Yep. It's uh, maybe only an inference or two. Yep. Um, sometimes people look at that and they say, oh, like, I'm so glad that that world is so full, but this other world is essentially empty. I feel like this is sort of a waste. No, but no. Not at all. Like, it's true that a lot of the questions that will come in that game will probably deal with the empty world because there's more that they can do with that world. But um, it's still valuable because when they, when they say something like in question six, if T is seventh and you're like, well, I know that's not world the, the full world because right. T is not seven right. in the full world, right away you know that Q is fourth you know, P is not third, and it's like yep. it gives you a, a boost in your diagram <laughs> just for that question that other people don't have. They're like, well, yep. I don't know what to do here, so I'm going to start with two diagrams or right. I'm just going to – who knows what, right? Yeah, it, in that scenario where one of the worlds gets completed or, or almost completed and the other world doesn't, if the if question forces you into the empty world, at least you get the one fact in the empty world, right? At least you know yeah. who's fourth. Yeah. And so and and whatever T is 7th and now you're off to a start. Yeah, the ball is now rolling and frequently you're going to be able to sketch out, "Oh, okay, well I'm in this world. I'm in a special version of this world where T is 7th." And then this triggers this and this triggers this and now you get to complete your local diagram for for that question as well. So, it, yeah, don't I, people do shy away from that like, "Ooh, I'm really scared by this empty world." But no, the game is going to force you into that empty world a lot. But you're going to have already, you're like halfway to a solution. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So <clears throat> I brought this topic up of worlds because I wanted to talk about specific triggers for when I consider making worlds. Okay. Okay. Sure. So the first one I wanted to mention is if there's a big block of uh, players who suppose, like, say there's a rule, uh, 
X was, must go immediately before Y and Y must go immediately before Z, right? So X, Y, sure. Z, like a yeah. big X, Y, Z block. Yeah, or even just two. Right? Yeah, or even an X, Y block, right? Yeah, but I agree, yeah. That, mm-hmm, that sure. big block is, is frequently a good place to start in making worlds because it's a big block. You know, you don't get mm-hmm. to just place one variable or you don't get to just fill one spot, but you get to put two variables or three variables um, mm-hmm. in two or three spots. So if you see a big block, uh, think about making worlds. This is very common in grouping games, actually, right? So if it's mm-hmm. uh, X and Y have to go together. Mm-hmm. Sure. And there's only three and groups. And you have three groups. Yeah. 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 You, it's worth, and now people get scared because, oh, I don't want to make three worlds. Well, okay, but you know, there's a world where X and Y are in group one, and there's a world where X and Y are in group two, and there's a world where X and Y are in group three. And so you have three worlds. You know where X, Y are in each of those three worlds. And then if if that triggers other stuff, in one or more of those worlds, you can frequently just dominate a game with that approach. Yeah. So I, I want to take a moment to talk about that too. Cause like I usually tell people, Hey, um, when I'm debating whether or not to create worlds, I'm going to look at situations where I'd have to create anywhere from two to four worlds. I, I usually don't do more than four, but, um, sometimes when I'm talking about creating four worlds, people get pretty nervous just like you're saying for three worlds like well i don't want to create three worlds up front at the beginning of the game that's going to waste so much time and then i i uh say okay well let's let's talk about this game that you just finished um did you test any answer choices for any of the questions oh yeah yeah question seven i tested answer choice a and answer choice d yeah all right well that's that's two diagrams right there yeah did you test any other answers in any other questions or create diagrams for any other questions? Yeah, well, for the three if questions, I created three diagrams. Well, now you're at five diagrams. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And then the other thing, so so again, if you would have just made the worlds in advance, you might have ended up making making less total diagrams Yeah, because you did it once instead of doing it multiple times for every single question or for more than one question. The other thing I would point out about that is that I too, you know, I, I think less worlds is better if you, if you can make Mm -hmm. a diagram that has less worlds. Yeah, of course we want simple, Mm -hmm. right? We don't want, uh, certainly I'm not making eight worlds. I mean, I might do that on (laughs) one game ever, but yeah. um, Yeah. And even then it's not a plan from the beginning. No, 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 no. I don't think I've ever done eight. I I might've done six, but it's, it's really like, oh, you're in the process of creating a sub world for right. one of your worlds. And you're like, Oh, if I just do this, I'll be done. <laughs> right. right. And so you do it. So we're not going to do this very often. And if I, if I think about an approach where, okay, I'm going to make four worlds here. Um, I'm not going to be thrilled about it, but frequently something magical happens when you pencil out those four worlds. Oh yeah. Which mm-hmm. is one of those worlds doesn't work. Yeah. Yeah. And when one of those worlds doesn't work, you just put a big ass X through it. Don't erase it. Erasing takes too much time. Just exit out. Mm -hmm. And now you have made a gigantic inference, right? I don't, Mm -hmm. I don't know how you made your four worlds. Like let's say it's X, Y, X, Y have to go together. You got four groups and X, Y have to go together. And if you made four worlds based on X, Y, uh, you mm-hmm. might learn that, oh, shit, X, Y, they actually can't go in group four. If I put X, Y in group four, it doesn't work. 
And when that world dies, you have now made this big inference that X, Y can't go forth. Yeah. It seems like a small thing, but it's, it's actually really, really huge. Oh, for sure. There's almost certainly going to be a, probably a must be true question. What must be true? And it's like, this can't go there. And you're like, yeah, it cannot. Yeah. Okay. So, um, less world is better, but sometimes you make three or four and, uh, it's possible that one of them dies uh, and you get to learn, you get to make big inferences about the game. So the first trigger I wanted to talk about was a big block, uh, yep. like X, Y have to go in the same group. The, sure. the next trigger I wanted to talk about, and I've been doing this really frequently lately, and I'm, I'm sure you do this too, Ben, but if there's a single conditional rule, uh, especially if it's a single, like nasty conditional rule. Um, for example, it has sequencing within the conditional. Yeah. Uh, like, you know, if T's first, then, uh, G has to go before H. Sounds like soup. 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 It's the soup game. The soup game. Yeah, if T is first. Oh, I said T. I was just making shit up. I know, but I'm just saying oh, it's like that's a Z for yeah. Okay, gotcha. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the 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 deal is this. I've learned, and it boy, it really pays off. Some I've actually gone back and you know done some older games that I used to do in different ways. But this yeah, yeah. this technique of making uh, worlds based on a conditional, uh, it 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 can it's so awesome because you get to eliminate that conditional rule. Basically you don't have to mm-hmm. think about that conditional ever again. So mm-hmm. let's say the rule is if uh, T is first, then it's yep. G before H. Okay. Sure. If T mm-hmm. first, then G before H. Mm-hmm. What I frequently would do is set up two templates. Mm-hmm. I would put T first in one of them. Mm-hmm. And in the other one, I would put T not first. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, yeah. so this is because I have to first start with a clear split where I make it so that these worlds are mutually exclusive, but they also encompass all possibilities, right? Yeah, that's actually a really good point. And I think that's a challenge for a lot of people sometimes is that they they make illogical splits. Well, they think right? they have to do the contrapositive in the second world, which is not true. Oh, what, no, no, what, no, no, not good. What, that's too constraining. Yeah, what you do is you you take the sufficient condition, you make the sufficient mm-hmm. condition true in one world and you make it false in the other. And the world where the sufficient condition is true, then you have to apply the necessary. So if T is first, well, in that template, G is always going to be before H. Yep. In the other template, T is not first, and that's the end. You do not care about G and H at that point. If the sufficient condition is false, then the rule does not apply in that scenario. So it's you know probably easier to teach this in video, and I, I would then refer everybody back to uh, strategyprep.com. That's Ben's free online class. Foxlsat.com. That's my free online class. And you can probably see us doing this uh, in, in the classroom. But um, a world where the sufficient condition is true, so the rule applies, so you get to apply the rule. And then mm-hmm. a world where the sufficient condition on that conditional is false, in which case the rule doesn't even matter. Just The rule just doesn't exist. And yeah. in that case, you don't ever even have to write down the contrapositive. You don't have to do anything. I, you wouldn't, I would literally not even write down the rule. Yeah, you don't want to write it down in no. the second world. Well, right? I don't want to write world. it down in the first world. I mean, in the first well, yeah, world, right. <laughs> I put T first and then I write no, G before H. Clarify. 
Sorry, sorry. Yeah, in the first world, you'd write down the the, the necessary yeah. result of that, right? Yes. G before H, and now it's a simple G comes before H, yeah. and you're like, in this world, I got to make sure G comes before H. In the second world, you just have to make sure the, H, uh, the T is not first, but right. there is no rule about right. G and H, so you don't want right. to write anything down, and you want to remember that that... There's nothing to remember. <laughs> this is an example of why I, I hate it when I see people go through and write down each of the rules first before they do everything else in the game. Oh, yeah. I'm never going to write a list of all of the rules. I think it's a big waste of time. And yeah. because in with this approach, if I decide I'm going to, oh, boy, I don't like this conditional, I'm going to see if I can just use this conditional to make two templates. So mm-hmm. I'll make a world where it's where the sufficient is true and a world where the sufficient is false. If the sufficient is true, then okay, it's G before H in this world. Now, I never wrote if then. I never wrote the if yeah. then arrow. I never did the contrapositive. I just put T first and then in that world, G before H. In the other mm-hmm. world, T's not first. That's it. I wash my hands of it. That rule is now dead to me. Yep. Okay? So that's the second trigger that I wanted to talk about was a single conditional rule. Now, by the way, I sorry to keep going back to this, but to focus in on the uh, sufficient condition, which is what you're uh, following and then saying is false, right? The reason you can do that really has nothing to do with if-then statements. It more just has to do with the fact that either T is going to be first or it's not. That's a clear dividing yep. line, and therefore you've covered all your options. There are no other options. You can't say, oh, wait, 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 T might be third. Well, that's in the idea that T is not first. So everything has been taken care of. Yeah, I'm only writing down things that I know for sure. So in, in one world, T is first, and in the other world, T is not first. If T is mm-hmm. not first, then T can go wherever it wants. I don't know. I mean, other yeah. rules probably apply, but if I just put T is not first, then T can go anywhere except for first. And you don't have to worry about it, that if-then statement because if a sufficient condition is not met, the rule dies. Yeah, the rule doesn't apply. The rule only applies when the sufficient condition is true. I think people get so yeah. caught up, like, you know, we have to teach them the technicality of how to do the contrapositive, right? But then yeah. everybody, they, they don't understand how to use that. And they then they think, oh, so it's a world where it's the rule, and then it's a world where it's the contrapositive. It's like, no, 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 no. <laughs> there's a world yeah. where the sufficient condition is true and triggers the necessary. And there's a world where the sufficient yeah. condition is not true, in which case there is no rule. Yeah. Okay. Um, Similar to the single conditional rule, Mm -hmm. I will frequently make worlds when I see a rule that says if and only if. Yeah. uh, Or a rule that says otherwise, which has the same effect as if and only if. Yep. Are there other synonyms besides otherwise? Are there other ways that they say an an if and only if rule? Uh, I mean... It's a silly variant, but if, but only if. The, if, I but haven't only seen if, anything. which no one in the world has ever said except for on the LSAT. <laughs> if, but only if. If, but only if. <laughs> yeah, they, the, if, but only if there were more episodes of the thinking LSAT. <laughs> so those mean the same thing. If and only if, yep. if, but only if, and uh, I guess otherwise. They, they, they have the same effect, which is it, the way I initially learned it was if and only if makes the arrow go both ways, right? If you see if and only yep. if you draw a double-headed arrow. Well, maybe you do, maybe you don't. Because on logic games, again, I, w- I don't think I would even bother writing down the rule. Um, presumably, I have read the whole setup, uh, you know, the scenario and all of the rules. I've read all of that before my pencil hits the paper. That's a really mm-hmm. good habit. Don't just start writing everything. Instead, read everything. Not all the questions, but just read the setup. Read the rules. 
start mm-hmm. looking for connections and plan your attack, you know, before you just start firing. But if I saw that if and only if rule, and frequently it's a really pain in the ass if and only if too. Okay, so how about if I make a world where both of those two things are true and I make a world where both of those two things are false? Yep. Right? In that case, I, I don't have to write down the rule. I don't have to document the rule. I know that either both of these things are true or both of these things are false. And so mm-hmm. that gives me a dividing line, right? That gives me two, that gives me potentially, I mean, it, it certainly I'm allowed to make two scenarios there. It, yeah. It's only useful if, you know, stuff starts happening in one or both of those scenarios, but it almost always does. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So that's very similar to the, the single conditional rule. You apply it a little bit differently, but yeah. in both of those scenarios, I wouldn't even bother writing down the rule. I would just go ahead and make the two templates or, or worlds. Yeah. Okay. Um, move down the list. Sure. Okay. It, a lot of times you'll see a single, very connected player and, mm-hmm. and that very connected player can only go in a couple spots. Yeah. So a rule like um, P has to go first or last mm-hmm. that, you know, I, I would start looking at it. I'd be thinking, Hmm, well, world where P goes first and world where P goes last. Okay. That could be useful. Um, yeah. But it's only really useful if P is going to also trigger a bunch of other stuff. Yeah. So, um, for example, if there was another rule that was, you know, so-and-so can only go first or second. Mm-hmm. Oh, well then in the world where P goes first, then it triggers that other guy to go in the second spot. Okay. That's interesting. And maybe there's yep. another rule that says something like, uh, hmm, the first or last thing is a little awkward. Uh, oh, maybe there's a rule like, um, <clears throat> Uh, something you know like t has to go in between p and q yeah that would be good in, or, in that scenario or or immediately next to p and you don't uh, right know next side. to yeah absolutely yeah t has to go next to p that's actually even better right so p can only go first or last and t has to go next to p oh mm-hmm. i make a world where p goes first and t then has to go second i make a world where p goes last and t then has to go second to last Nice. So if you ever see a really connected guy, somebody who, you know, seems like they're mentioned in multiple rules, and if they mm-hmm. can only go in two or three or maybe four spots, then that might give me a, you know, little hint uh, to start making worlds. Yeah. What else? What other triggers do you look for if you're going to think about making worlds? Yeah. So I just added this one other one. I, I think about a lot when I am doing a grouping game. Uh-huh. So for example, um, well in grouping games, you're, you're given a number of groups, usually three or four, and you're trying to fill those groups with people. And in the easier grouping games, they often tell you exactly how many people are in each group. They might say something, there's exactly two people mm-hmm. in each group or two things. Right. Um, in some of the in some of the more moderate grouping games, they may tell you, "Hey, there's at least one in each group," but they don't tell you how many uh, may go in a group. Maybe you could have four or five people or something. You have to kind of figure that out on your own. And then in some of the even harder grouping games, there's just no constraints. Right? You could have a group with nobody. Um, 
But in any case, in grouping games in general, I'm trying to figure out if I can, you can't always do so, but I'm trying to figure out what the minimum and maximum is for each group. And in some of these grouping games, they may give you a rule that says something like, you know, group three has to have more people than group two, which on the surface doesn't sound very constraining. You're like, okay, I just got to make sure to have at least one more person in this third group. But when you start thinking about the numbers, when you say, wait a sec, I only got six people here and two of these people have to be together and they're going to be over here. Um, If I put... uh, Three people, (laughs) I can't put three people in this group that's supposed to be smaller. So it has a max of two people. Uh, And when I do two people, I can only do three or four people in this other group. So I'm starting to like run the numbers. And I think to myself, you know what? There's only two or three arrangements here that work with the given number of people and the fact that the third group has to have more people than the second group. Sometimes there's still a lot of flexibility, but I would say more often than not, there are only two or three arrangements. And if I can pin down exactly how many people are in each of those groups by creating three worlds, one in which two people are in group two or and three people in group three or two people in group two and four people in group three, if I can pin that all down, then it's a lot easier to make inferences as I'm going through the game because I'm like, oh, I'm in this world, which means that group is now full, so everybody else has to go into the other groups. And so I tend to make worlds in grouping games where you can lay out exactly how many people are in each group. Yep. Awesome. Uh, cool. Anything else we want to add about that? I don't think so. I think that's a lot about worlds. I sum it up like this. When I'm trying to decide about worlds, I tend to ask myself, how many would I have to create? What's that dividing line? Would I have to create two, three, or four worlds? The more worlds I have to create, the less likely I'm going to do it. Um, But then the other question, it's not just how many worlds would you have to create. It's also how full are they likely to get? You don't know for sure until you actually create them sometimes, but you can have a sense like, yeah, it would be really nice to know where P goes because P is a very connected player. Um, In that case, I'm more likely to give it a shot, even if I have to create three worlds or four worlds. But my, my two questions are, how many would I have to create? And how full are they likely to get? The more full they're likely to get, the more likely it is I'm going to jump in and do it. Awesome. I, I agree. Yeah, I think um, it's a balancing test, right? Uh, yep. You want less worlds, but you want more to happen in those worlds. And so mm-hmm. it's kind of a trade-off sometimes. Yeah. Um, hey, let's uh, leave it there for today. Okay. And uh, I think we've already given the listeners more than their money's worth. Um, <laughs> more than more than free, <laughs> yeah. but uh, hopefully the concepts have been good. Um, anything else you want to add, Ben? No, that's all. Okay, thanks for listening, and we will talk to you again shortly. See ya.